0: In our our line-by-line, verse-by-verse, in-depth Bible study of the book of Philippians, we find Paul talking about his own imprisonment. One of the things for us to realize from this book is that Paul writes this from prison in Rome. This is a prison epistle. And everyone who ever does a study on Philippians entitles it something joy. Our our study is authentic joy. And so you have a man who is imprisoned and he's writing about the joy of Christ. And if he really had the joy of Christ, why being in a Roman jail, then it tells us that no matter where we're at or the circumstances that we are in, that it is Christ that really matters. It is Christ that makes the difference, not our circumstances. And we see that clearly as this letter here begins to unfold. And he begins to talk about his ministry from prison. It starts off in verse 12, where Paul says, But I want you to know, brethren, that these things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. He wants to encourage them. He's written this letter to them. He's talked to them already about God continuing the work in them, the love that they have, how they have grown over the 10 years since Paul has planted the church in Philippi. And they all know that he's in in under arrest in rome and so when they got a letter from him they would be wanting to know almost immediately how are you doing paul how are you and so paul wants to let them know that everything is okay and the things that have happened to me have worked out for the furtherance of the gospel this is a really important principle for all of us because If something happens in our lives, we go down a road we didn't choose, we go down a road we would never choose to go down, but we go down it anyway, we can often think that God is being hindered, that the enemy is attacking, and God's not gonna be able to get the work done that he wants to do. But the truth is, is that God can work in anything. And sometimes, out of the difficulties, God does his greatest work. I've always said, or I've said, here recently anyway, that people look at us closer when we're facing difficulties. When life is good and things are easy and things are moving along, well, the world kind of figures anybody can serve Christ. But when things take a dark turn, it's then that the world takes a look at us and people have got to be wondering about Paul. Now, Paul was on the end of his last missionary journey. He's taking a gift back to uh, Jerusalem. And as he's on his way there, he begins to run into prophets People, individuals, who start telling him that he's going to be arrested in Rome. It seems like he already knows this. He's set on going there. He so much wants to make it for a certain time of year that he meets the elders of Ephesus. He makes them go to the area by the beach where he can meet with them. It's a very moving um, event when he meets with these elders at Ephesus and they weep together as Paul leaves them knowing that, it's, that something's going to happen in Jerusalem. When he gets there, he's got representatives with him of all of these different Gentile churches that have gone with him to make sure the money that they gave got to those who were in Jerusalem where they were supposed to go. So when Paul gets there, for whatever reason, and, and, and we'll talk about this more When we're in the book of Acts, which I want to cover before too long, we'll talk about it then. uh, Paul decides that he's going to take a vow. Now, Paul has pointed out, Galatians, uh, in, in Romans, that we are not under the law and we are not responsible for keeping the law. Gentiles or Jews. Paul gets to Jerusalem and he shaves his head, which is probably the vow of the Nazarite, and he enters into the temple. When he gets into the temple, there's some people who recognize him. And they point out the man who has caused trouble all around the world is here. And he's brought a Gentile in the temple with him, which he didn't do. He probably, I think he had Timothy with him. They probably thought it was Titus. They probably saw him with Titus in other places in the city. But they think that he's, and they they descend upon him. And the Roman guards that are there intervene and they pull them apart. And they want to find out from Paul what's going on. And Paul says, can I talk to the crowds? And so he talks to to the the people that are there in the temple. And everything goes swimmingly, as they say. He tells them about Jesus. He tells them about his death. He tells them about meeting him on the road to Damascus. He talks about how how God's used him. But as soon as he says that Jesus said, I'm going to send you to the Gentiles, they, it turns into an uproar. And they just go berserk. Now, They're watching jesus the romans right from italy probably speaking italian hear paul talking to the the people in the temple maybe aramaic some believe maybe hebrew but probably aramaic and as he speaks to them the roman soldier doesn't understand so he tells paul what's this all about and he says beat him just like he's not no nonsense you know kind of centurion here just beat him just beat him now we'll find out what this is all about and paul says you're going to beat a roman and so they take him into protective custody. Paul may never come out of protective custody of the Romans. Some historians say that Paul was released for a couple of years, that, that he went before Nero and that Nero released him, and then he was rearrested a couple of years later and then he was killed. But we don't really know. That's, these are just historical things that are out there. We're not really sure. What we do know is that he will be beheaded in Rome. This is the beginning of that event. The uh, Sanhedrin, other Jewish leaders, want to kill Paul. And you can go to Acts 21 to read all of this. All right. And and it's extremely interesting. Um, But they want to kill him. And so they bring him in protective custody to Caesarea. They, the soldiers on horses that to protect him and get him to Caesarea by the sea. And while he's there, he's kept for two years. And he stands before Festus, not from Gunsmoke. And he stands before Felix and Herod Agrippa. And, and that's this, when he's talking to Herod Agrippa, he's taken out of his cell. He's brought before Herod Agrippa. And Herod, that's when Herod Agrippa says to him, you're trying to persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul says, how I wish that you would become every way like me except for these chains. All except for these chains, I wish that you, Agrippa, would become every bit like I, I have become. He's, he's, he really desires to see Agrippa come to Christ. Um, when some of the leaders from Jerusalem come up and meet with Festus, they then decide that they're going to pay some money to have Paul released. And so when Festus starts to tell Paul, you're going to be released, Paul realizes what's going on and his life is going to be in danger. So Paul appeals to Caesar. As a Roman citizen Uh, born in Tarsus, he can appeal to Caesar, which means that any Roman citizen could have their case heard before Caesar. (laughs) It might take a while before you get there, but you could do that. And so Festus is like, I was going to let you go, which is in the category of liar. I was going to let you go, but I can't let you go now because you appealed to Caesar and you've appealed to Caesar and to Caesar you will go. Paul then gets on a ship gets shipwrecked, ends on the island of Malta, gets attacked by a snake, survives it, finds himself in Rome, and he is now under house arrest. He may have been in the Maritime prison in Rome. If you ever visit there, you should go to the Maritime prison. It's possible that Paul was there. But at some point, he was able to get his own house, which meant that people could come back and forth and visit him, but he could not leave. And he speaks of his chains often. They chained him in that home to Roman guards, which means everything Paul did, he had a Roman guard with him. And it's probably not going to surprise some of you that Paul ended up winning soldiers and some of the family of the emperor to Christ because Paul was still ministering in prison. Now, we might take a look at that direction. And maybe Paul did experience some of this. Paul may have thought, you know, it's almost done. And and I'm just, you know, this is the end here. I think I'll just give up. But Paul continued to minister during it. And he says, these things that have happened to me have turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. He knew that the gospel is the life-changing power of God for people to get saved. That's why it's important to preach the gospel I think you should give a, 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 some kind of a gospel presentation at every service. I'm not saying everybody's got to do altar calls, have people raise their hands. But, but the gospel should be presented because people are not going to be saved without the gospel. Now, let's just take a few minutes to talk about the gospel because he talks about the things happening to him, having actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. The first place I want to go is 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. I want to look at it again and, and point out a couple of things. Uh, Paul writes to the Corinthians, he says this about the gospel. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. Of course, the, go- the term gospel means good news, which I preach to you, which also you received, and again which you stand, and also you are saved. Did you follow the progression there? He preached it, they received it, they stand in it, and they are saved by it. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the only way that you are saved, by the way. It is only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we don't want our friends and our family and people that attend church to stumble into the gospel, to hear bits and pieces of it. We want to clarify it completely. And then he says, if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And this would be some who don't genuinely follow Christ, who, for whatever reason, became Christians and then didn't follow through with it. But he says, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you first that which I received. Paul wants them to know, I received this. Because Paul wasn't one of the original 12. I think that Paul is the replacement for Judas, but Paul references himself in this chapter as one born outside of time. Paul begins his career as a Pharisee who hates Christians, hates them. And he's there when the first martyr Stephen is killed and they lay their coats at the feet of a young man by the name of Saul. When, because of the persecution of Paul and and the other Jews in Jerusalem, the gospel spreads to other cities. So Paul begins to go to other cities to persecute them. Later on, Paul says that I am the chief among sinners, that I gave my my vote to Christians being killed. So Paul, as a young man, actually voted as a Pharisee and a leader that Christians would be killed. And I think that you could see that in Paul's writings. He has a very hard time forgiving himself for that time in his life. When suddenly on the Damascus Road, he meets Jesus, and he is completely transformed. and, And he realizes... Once he's received the gospel and and he immediately begins to preach in Damascus and there's problems And then he goes to Jerusalem and he meets the disciples and he realizes if what I believe is different than what they believe Then then they're right and I'm wrong He says this in one of his letters I had to go and meet with them because if he didn't believe what they believed he knew he was wrong And they believed the same thing And so he says I received it You received the gospel you didn't come up with it. It wasn't your thought. It wasn't your idea. It wasn't your unique aspect. I, I love when you can discover something out of the scriptures that's unique. That's exciting. But I, I, I don't know if it's genuinely unique. I'm sure it's been thought about before, to tell you the truth. Just whether or not it's really popular today. But we all receive the gospel. It's, it's what we got saved by. It's what people will get saved by until Jesus Christ returns to this earth. He says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. That's the first part of it. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. So he boils down the gospel to these three events. He died for our sins, which we know was crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. He was buried in Jerusalem and he rose from the dead and that all of these three Are according to the scriptures. In other words, you can make a case for all three of these in the Old Testament. These didn't just happen, and then they—you know—then Christianity sprung out of it. They were foretold, and that's the power of the gospel. That's why, as Paul went around the world, he would go into the synagogues and he would persuade them that Jesus was the Messiah by the scriptures. He was using prophecy. To minister to them, to show them this is what the Old Testament said. They knew it very well and that Jesus was the fulfillment of it. There's one who was just killed in Jerusalem. They buried him and he rose from the dead. And here's what the Old Testament said. And people would receive Christ and give their lives to him. By the way, these are still the arguments that we can use today when someone questions the details of the gospel. In the Mid 80s, well, the early 80s, when I first began to pastor, there was a lot of people who questioned the mythicists, those people that believe that Jesus was a myth were very common. Today, you can hardly not find them. In fact, the real truth is out of scholars, you're going to be really hard pressed to find somebody who says, I believe Jesus was a myth because there's so much evidence of the existence of Jesus. Not only do we know Jesus existed, but we also know that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. We we know that because we have, of, of course, first of all, these ancient letters that we hold as scripture, but also it is confirmed through Roman historians and Jewish historians that Jesus was crucified and buried and rose again. All of these things are talked about in secular writings and that he was presumed to be the Christ. They're all out there in other writings besides the Bible from their day. And so today when people say to me, and I'll run into them, and they'll say, well, I just don't believe Jesus ever existed. It's like, you can say that, but that's like me saying, I don't believe George Washington ever existed. There is is that much evidence. And then he talks about, You know, that the gospel is Jesus died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again, according to the scriptures. And then it says, um, and he was seen by Cephas and then by the 12. And he goes on to list other people that he was seen by. This is also the strength of the gospel. The evidence that this is true because the world was turned upside down. By 12 men who took this message around the world. And something had to happen. It is considered to be an indisputable fact that the disciples believed that Jesus rose from the dead. Now, listen carefully to how I say that. It's considered to be an indisputable fact that the disciples believed Jesus rose from the dead. In other words, an ungodly scholar or a a scholar who's not a Christian is is not going to say that it's an undisputed fact that Jesus rose from the dead. But did Peter believe it? Did Paul believe it? They believed it so much that they gave their lives for it. They believed it so much that they went out with an incredible enthusiasm and told people that Jesus was risen from the dead. And the gospel spread around the known world within a decade. Christians like Paul, who was an enemy of the church, people who are enemies of something so rarely ever become a part of it, much less a leader in it. And that was Paul. James, the brother of Jesus, thought that Jesus was crazy. They went to rescue him at one point during his ministry. His brothers thought, and here's how the Bible says it, that he was beside himself. That was a reference to being crazy. You're so crazy, you're like standing beside yourself. And he became the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. So something, and the Bible says that Jesus appeared to James, who became the pastor of his half-brother, who became the pastor of Jerusalem. So these things that Paul brings up are still the evidences that we go back today to talk about proofs for the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. He goes on then, and and he does go on to talk about Jesus appearing to more people. So this is the gospel, and it says in John 1, 12 and 13, but, and this is an often quoted verse by me, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become a child of God, to those who believe in his name, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God. This is that when you believe the gospel and you believe Jesus died for your sins, he didn't just die, he died for your sins. And his, his death has the power to remove all of your sins if you would receive him and be born, not of the will of flesh, which it says in John 1, 13, but of the will of God. If you're not born of the will of God, then you don't have your sins forgiven. The power is still there. The power of Jesus's death on the cross was for everybody in the world who would receive him. If you receive him, that power is applied to your life. And then in Romans 1, Paul says this. We're still talking about the gospel, in case you forgot. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Paul says, that Jesus died for our sins, that he rose again. This seems to be overly simplistic. It seems to be to people um, very convenient. Oh, you can just ask Jesus to, to into your life and your sins will all be forgiven, right? Today, people will mock Christianity in that way. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel is not set up so that, that we look like heroes when we receive them. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Everyone who believes the power of the gospel transforms your life and changes you. This is why I say that we have to be given a giving a presentation of the gospel on a regular basis. And I think that's for us as well. And we'll get more into that here in just a moment. He goes on to say for the Jew first and then for the Greek, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So for each person here that made a commitment to Christ, we put our faith, our belief in Jesus's death for our sins. And by that, we have been saved. Paul says, one more verse. This is 1 Corinthians 2, 4 and 5. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. When Paul shows up in Corinth, he says to them, I didn't come to you with persuasive words. He wasn't a flowery preacher. He didn't have the best preaching style. Paul says of himself that he's strong in letter, but weak in speech. He was not a good speaker, but he wrote great letters. He's a great writer. I, I discovered that in Warren Wiersbe. And some people may like Warren Wiersbe as a speaker, but I remember reading almost all of Warren Wiersbe's books by the time I'm 20 years old. And then I hear a program, the Warren Wearsby program, and I listen to him give, you know, just give a a message. And I'm like, is this the same Warren Wearsby? Because he was powerful in in writing, but not so much in his presentation. So he says, but in demonstration, um, let me go back to the beginning here. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and power that your faith should not be by the wisdom of men, but by the power of God. And I just bring that verse up to be able to encourage you and anyone that may be heading off into the ministry, that God may use you to go out and plant a church or take over a church someday, that you would know it's not the wisdom of your words. It's not how good you are in your presentation that gets people saved. It's the power of God. And he says in in 1 Corinthians 2, but in Romans 1 16, he says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So when he showed up in power, he showed up with the gospel. Now, it's no accident that he leaves Athens and comes to, to Corinth. Because in Athens he does give a great message. Acts chapter 17. He gives this great message. He talks about, you, you guys are very religious. There's statues all around the city and one of them is to the unknown God and it's to him that I want to talk to you today. And he quotes their philosophers and he does all these things. And at the end of his sermon, it says, some believed and some didn't. And some said, we'll hear you on another day. And no church ever broke out in Athens. But he gave this great sermon. It's used in, in sermon preparation classes and seminary as a great example of a great sermon. But I think when Paul got to Corinth, he was like, I'm done trying to be that fancy sermon guy. I'm going to give the power of the gospel. So he says to them, I didn't come to you with the words of wisdom. I came to you in in spirit and in power. And God moved. So he says, the things that have happened to me have happened for the furtherance of the gospel. We want that to be the truth in our lives, that whatever happens to us, good or bad, it would be for the furtherance of the gospel, because this is the way people gain eternity. And so in verse 13, he says, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. How you live your life matters before you ever say a word. I can't remember who said it, but somebody said, every day of your life, preach the gospel and sometimes use words. That means your life is lived in such a way that people see you and they want to hear from you. They want to listen to what you've got to say. Paul, um, in Philippians 1.27, a little bit later on in this chapter, Paul says this, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul was considering his conduct even in chains, even in, in prison. Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come to see you or i am absent, I hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. That they as a church would strive together for the faith of the gospel, but their conduct would be worthy of the gospel of Jesus. And That's our, our first point of application in our study today. That, our, that, that before we can ever share the gospel, and it's going to mean anything to anybody. Then we have to have our conduct be right. My, my late wife, Lisa met the Lord at 18 years old. She had been all over the place before that. She'd done all kinds of things in, in her own testimony. She, she talks about the things that she was involved in. And so that when she got saved, her family were like, oh, okay, okay, yeah, you got, you're, you're religious now. They just didn't believe it. But over the period, over the, the, uh, over the passing of time, they saw her faith was genuine and every single one of them got saved, including her dad, who got saved three months. He died three months after she died, and he got saved in between that time. Every one of them. And it wouldn't do with their words because when she first got saved, they were like, mm, no, no. And so many of us were like that. We commit our lives to Christ, and it's our family and friends. It's the closest people to us. It's like, this is just another thing. Give it time, it'll pass. But let your conduct be worthy of the gospel, knowing that it is the power to save people. And the very people that you care about the most are the ones who are going to be influenced by you living your life in that way. And so it became evident to the palace guard that his chains were in Christ. The way Paul lived mattered. The way we live matters. And so in verse 14, he says, And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are now more bold to speak the word without fear. Now he turns and he starts to address the church in Rome. Paul planted most of the churches that he wrote letters to, but he didn't plant the church in Rome. Some suggest that it was Priscilla and Aquila. We just don't know. We don't know who, who started the church. What we do know is that Paul wanted to go to Rome. He longed to go to Rome. He finally got there. He's there now. He wrote. He wrote his greatest work. The apex of the writings of Paul is the book to the Romans. To a church that he didn't plant, that he had never visited. He wrote the the book of Romans to them. And he now talks about them. And he says, my chains caused them to be more bold. They're they're in Rome. They're They're in the heart of the beast. That Christianity is not a sanctioned religion by Rome. And so they could suffer and they do suffer eventually because of, of it. But they're bold to preach the gospel and to share the gospel because they see Paul's chains. His conduct not only allowed everyone to know that his chains were in Christ, but it also encouraged people to live the way that they're supposed to. As our life does as well. As we live our lives for Jesus now, as we do it year after year after year, people see that and they're, they're encouraged to live their lives for Christ as well. At least They should. And so in verse 15, he says of these, this Roman church now, but some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife and also some from goodwill. Now he brings up the problem of humanity within church. Have you ever noticed that? You notice that there are humans in church (laughs) and that humans are not perfect, right? So there's conflict. And so some in the Roman church were jealous and caused strife. That happens today. Happens in church. It happens in our church. In the 36 years that we've been at church, we've had people out of jealousy try to tear things down. We've had people just out of strife. They're just contentious. And they just want to cause as much problems as they possibly can. Praise God. It's few and far between. But it happens. And uh, I heard this joke earlier today. I shared it back in the green room. Man was stranded on a a desert island and um, had been there for five years. Finally, he was rescued. When he was rescued, he was so moved. He says, I've been here for five years. He wanted to show the the people who rescued him where he'd lived. And he came back and he showed him a hut that was made with his own hands. And they were impressed. And he goes, let me show you one more thing. And he took him over and he showed him another hut that was, was that he said, this is my church. I wanted to make sure I I went to church while I was here. So I built a church with my own hands. And those who rescued him said, what's that building? There's another building almost identical to his church. And he says, that's the church I used to go to. (laughs) And the reason we chuckle at that is because it's true, right? There seems to be somewhat of a circuit because there are people in church, because there's problems that arise. And something to point out is these people preaching Christ from envy and strife were genuine believers. They are jealous of Paul. They want to cause difficulty and hardships for Paul, but they are genuine believers. And the people that cause difficulties out of envy and strife in your life, it doesn't mean they're not genuine believers. And we need to pray for them as such. It's really easy when someone causes strife in our life to go, well, they're doing that because they're not really Christians. But they are. They're just messed up. (laughs) They're just messed up Christians, at least from our perspective, right? Don't let it surprise you when conflicts arise from real Christians. So he says then in verse 16, he wants to talk a little bit more about these preaching Christ through envy and strife in the church in Rome. He says the former preach Christ from selfish ambition. Now, the Bible tells us later on in Philippians, and you got, to, you got to know it's connected. Paul says, don't do anything out of selfish. It's the next chapter, out of selfish ambition. So we've got to check ourselves regularly. Am I doing what I'm doing out of selfish ambition? These guys preached Christ out of selfish ambition. That's the end result. Then he says, not sincerely. The second thing is they weren't sincere about it. They cared about themselves, They selfish ambition, so that... They weren't doing it so people would get saved. They were doing it so that they would become more known. So they could be part of the in-group in the church in Rome. That they could have the power, whatever they got out of it. They were doing it not sincerely. Supposing to add afflictions to my chains, Paul says. These guys are in so much strife with Paul that they preach the gospel and down-talk Paul, hoping to add strife to his chains. The chains are already a drag. They're connected to a Roman soldier. They cause problems in his life. They cause difficulties and scabbing and bleeding. And and now there are Christians causing afflictions to his chains. It's, It's a drag. And it's a drag when it happens in church. Churches today, but it does happen. Not everybody has perfect motives, but they are genuine believers. Not every genuine believer does the things that they are supposed to do. And so in verse 17, he says, but the latter... Now, those are the ones who preach Christ from goodwill in verse 15, right? But the latter out of love, knowing I am appointed for the defense of the gospel, knowing this is why I am appointed for the gospel of Jesus Christ and for its defense. And they serve out of love. And that's the reason we should serve. It ought to be out of love. Love for the the believers in the church. Love for their families. Love for people who don't know Christ. Truly out of love. May we really love people and care about their eternities because that's why the people who did it properly really sought it. Now, God had raised up some encouragement for Paul. This is one of the last letters Paul ever writes. I think, it's, I think I shared this last time. It's Philippians, 1 Timothy, Titus, 2 Timothy. And 2 Timothy is the final letter. And in 2 Timothy, Paul's in, it's another prison epistle. Paul says this. The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onsiphorus. If you're looking for a a baby name, by the way, Onsiphorus. The the Lord grant mercy on the house of Onsiphorus, for he often refreshed me. He would go to the home where Paul was, spend time with him. And he was not ashamed of my chains. Some people obviously were. We know that there were people that wanted to add pain to his chains. Some people were ashamed of his chains. I wonder if there's anybody that said to Paul, you know, you're in these chains because you got sin in your life. You don't got enough faith. That's why you're in chains. Probably something like that. He was not ashamed ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. He he couldn't, Onsiferus couldn't find him easily. The Romans had almost ignored him and completely neglected him. But here he is, the Apostle Paul, who's planted churches all around the world, who wrote them the book of Romans, who cared so much about them, and he can't find them. But he sought them out zealously and found him. And then he says, the Lord grant to him that he may find mercy in the Lord, um, from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. Onesiphorus was also a friend who ministered to him in Ephesus. Then he says at the end of Timothy, This is 2 Timothy, chapter 4. Some of the last words Paul ever writes. At my first offense, this is before Nero. It's one of the reasons we believe that he may have been released in between it. At my first offense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. That just makes me sad that Paul stood in front of Nero with believers in the city of Rome, and none stood with him, but everyone forsook him. And Paul's prayer is that it wouldn't be charged against them. Then he says this, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Was Paul put into an arena with a lion? That's one suggestion. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and, per, uh, and, and persevere me from this, uh, for the, his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever, amen. So Paul, after saying that there's people that are doing this out of the defense of the gospel, the latter for the defense of the gospel, says in verse 18, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is is preached and in this I rejoice, yes and will rejoice so when the difficulty comes from people Paul is like I'm going to let it go I'm not going to hold on to this what do you do with individuals that attack you what do you do with people who do things out of strife and envy towards you it can eat your lunch especially when they're Christians why'd they do that to me they shouldn't be doing that to me but Paul just said, I rejoice that Christ is preached. doesn't matter to me. He let it go. Now, if it was false doctrine that was being taught, Paul went after it. Just read the book of Galatians. If anybody comes to you teaching you anything different than what you've already heard, even if we come to you teaching anything different than what you've already heard, let them be accursed. Let that person teaching something new that hasn't already been, let him be accursed. And you read the whole book of Galatians. Paul's after false teachers. But when it comes to people attacking Paul, he's like, I only rejoice that Christ is being preached. So what do you do when someone in church just starts to be an enemy of yours, tears you down? You let it go. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is preached. And in this, I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. What a great message from Paul to them about the power of the gospel to change people's lives, his commitment to it, People mispreaching are preaching the gospel out of wrong motives and yet still being saved by that. Even with the wrong motives, even from selfish ambition, even from envy, jealousy and strife, people are still being saved. And what a great example Paul gives us of how we should respond when there's very real strife from very real Christians in church. Now, I vote for a church where that doesn't happen. And I vote for that to be Calvary tucson to where we all serve him out of sincerity, where we all serve him with the right heart and the right mind. But I kinda don't think that's gonna be the case because humans are involved in it all, right? So may we be committed to the gospel. Before we get out of the book of Philippians, I wanna talk about practically how we take the gospel of Jesus and we present it to our family. But we first of all live it and we look for opportunities to let them know The death of Jesus for our sins, his burial and his resurrection were all foretold by the scriptures. In other words, you have a reason to believe them. You're not just blindly grabbing onto something, but you have a reason to believe them. We'll talk about practicality in another study. Stand with me, would you? Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you so much for your word, the strength that we find from the scriptures. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.